well, this movie was interesting because the gang is multi-ethnic. <laughs> I, um, I, I went ahead and started recording, by the way. To, but I see that, yeah. yeah. Avoid legal snags by uh, letting people, you know, know they're being recorded. Um, uh, oh, yeah. The, welcome to Trash Cannon, by the way. And uh, this, I am very pleased to have on my, my good friend, Jonathan Root, um, who is a uh, historian of pop culture in the 20th century. So we're, we're going to bring Death Wish 3 to sophisticated right. analysis that it deserves. Yeah, so thanks, Chad. Thank you. <laughs> Actually, you no. Know, so when you first asked me to do this a few weeks ago, you know, I was excited. So I, like, I, I enjoy listening to your podcast, actually. Oh, thank it. you. Uh, it's really good. But yeah, despite the audio problems, that hopefully we won't have. I was thinking about, so at some point, so I am a unashamed, unironic lover of trash movies. I, especially lately, Amazon Prime now has all these straight-to-video action movies from the 90s and early 2000s. I love them. Um, I'll sit and watch them for hours. But it's like, I was thinking about when we first met. You realize Chad was almost 10 years ago? Oh, God. Ugh. It would have been fall 2009. Right. Uh, but we didn't have a class together until historiography in 2010. Then we discovered our mutual love for trash movies, for B movies. Uh, it must have been around then, right? Or we started hanging out with Bob. It would have been a few years later. But at some point, yeah, I, I could not remember how all that happened, how we came to realize we both loved these types of movies. That, but I have a genuine appreciation for watching them. Like, I love it. So that's trying to go back into our memory bank. We remember when it was we first discovered this about each other. Yeah, it, it united us. And yeah. I, I, I wish I could remember what, what first movie we talked about. But uh... yeah, I mean, was it a Mr. Science Theater 3000 thing came up maybe? Yeah, that must have been. Usually with people, it comes out that they like Mr. Science Theater 3000. And then we say, oh, yeah. By the way, I've seen these movies without the commentary, and then we, <laughs> like, I have seen Future War several times without the commentary, uh, and I love it. Sam, I'm trying to remember how far back. I mean, Ten years is a long time, Chad. Yeah, definitely. Is. Jesus, old. <laughs> uh, speaking of old, <laughs> yeah. oh, he's like in his uh, mid sixties. We made this movie. Yeah, and um, and I, I actually honestly didn't remember that uh, there were two Death Wishes after this one. Um, Death Wish 4 to Crackdown and Death Wish 5, The Face of Death, which came out in the early 90s, um, which was called The Face of Death because by that point, Charles Bronson was indeed the face of death. Yeah, he didn't, look, he didn't even look too good in Death Wish 3. No, no. I mean, and, and this Death Wish Five was ten years later, and I, I yeah. sadly don't think I've seen it. Um, I have, sure. I have it on VHS. I'm actually looking at it right now. <laughs> we should talk about that at some I point because maybe to we, watch that one soon. Yeah, we probably be the only two people in history who who actually <laughs> saw it and discussed it. Yeah. But, but I, I, I was I was actually thinking about the fact that I actually haven't seen the original Death Wish. I did see Death Wish two, and you know that I'm not the most 
most people would not call me woke. Um, yeah, and I, yeah. I'm definitely not easily offended by movies, but after seeing Death Wish 2, I needed to take a shower. Um, oh, really? Yeah, it's yeah, just I like... I haven't seen every... two. I've seen, I think I've seen one, three, and four. Okay. Yeah, what did, what did you think about the original one? See, I don't remember. It's, if, I, if I saw it, it would have been 15-some-odd years ago. But yeah. now it's 20. So I don't remember it. Um, all I remember is, again, the violence is as graphic as the third and fourth one. Uh, third and fourth one are a little more over the top with their violence, mm-hmm. especially the last kind of battle scenes. But I seem to remember at least the first one there seemed to be motivation for his violence. This one, third one, there is none. Yeah. <laughs> and there is, it's just violence for violence sake. It's kind of sickening. <laughs> yeah. It's just uh, so negative. Such a cynical movie. Yeah. It's well, well we can get into that, but I, I think it's like, it, it's disturbing, but if you turn your brain off, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's one of those movies. It is. Uh, yeah. It's so, I mean, it's just, it's just, yeah, it's dumb. Right? It's just mindless lizard brain fun. I bet, I bet Donald Trump would love this movie. <laughs> oh, yeah, let's go. Brainless, well, his favorite movie is Bloodsport. Did you know that? Or one of his favorite movies? Did he say that? Have you heard this story about Donald Trump and Bloodsport? No, no. So I think it's a New York New Yorker piece about him or something. Uh-huh. But the reporter shows up. This is, on, this is still VHS days. He made, I think it was Don Jr. Eric, get up and fast forward to the boring scenes of Bloodsport. <laughs> reporter there. Oh my God, that, that actually makes me relate to Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? But can you imagine how many, like, like, ten, like something like 10% of the movie Bloodsport has to be connected to nonviolent, you know, stuff so yeah. i mean how so you can just imagine how adhd donald trump must be if if he can't even stand like the few scenes in blood sport that right. involve character development or... basically none. i watched a movie recently there's almost none <laughs> almost none well what's so crazy is that again in, in the racial politics of these deathless movies he's all in line with i'm sure yeah which I think eventually we should talk about the racial politics of these movies, especially the third one here, because it's I have a theory about how why they wrote it the way they did, um, especially compared to the second and the fourth one. Yeah, uh, right about the second one, but apparently its racial politics are shocking. Yeah, and and for those who don't know, um, like it, it's really impossible to talk about these movies without going into the politics, because especially because of. How the first movie is a betrayal of what the novelist um, Brian Garfield set out to do, uh, which was to write a story about a man who starts out as a, quote, bleeding heart liberal. And then after his his family is broken apart by horrific violence, um, I, I believe like in the movie, in the novel, his wife is murdered what wife and son or just his daughter. wife the movie's daughter. daughter yeah his wife okay. and daughter are robbed or mugged and they find out they don't have much money they rape daughter i think um, yeah yeah she, the mother yeah. dies from her injuries the daughter is catatonic in a mental hospital 
Yeah, that's right. And she commits suicide in the second movie, uh, which is one of the reasons why I had to take a shower after watching it. But um, the first, in the first Death Wish, um, in the novel, it, it, it's the moral is basically don't become a vigilante or you'll become at. You'll, you'll develop as much of a violent, self-destructive ethos as the people you're seeking to revenge yourself upon, and you'll destroy what's left of your family. And the movie, it has like a little bit of that, but for the most part, it's like, hey, look how awesome it is the, that this guy is taking justice to the streets, taking it into his own hands, and, you know... Like the justice system is broken, so because of bleeding heart liberals, so you know, guys like uh, Kersey, who, who Paul Kersey, yeah, yeah, Paul Kersey, but I keep wanting to call him Charles Bronson. Yeah, <laughs> call him Charles Bronson. I'm gonna call the bald police chief the guy from the worst episode of the X Files ever. Um, <laughs> Which one is that? Oh, so you know Ed Lauter, the chief. That's Wish Three. He's in space. He's he has about the face on Mars in the X Files. Oh yeah, I hate that episode. I'd be the worst one. I just remember him from Star Trek. I forgot he was in X Files too. Yeah, he's in that one episode. <laughs> I think Mulder's uh, idol or something or other. It's terrible. <laughs> but I wanted to throw out there that um, that like Brian Garfield was so horrified by the movie that he wrote a sequel, Death Sentence. Uh, where Kersey is actually ends up fighting another vigilante who's worse than he is. And, you know, he it, it makes it very explicit that Garfield did not set out to romanticize vigilante, blah, 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 vigilanteism. Yeah. yeah um, no. that's, I mean, that's what I read about the novel and the, res- and the author's response to the movie, that he was horrified by it in the checks. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Oh no, no, no. I mean, I would. I would do the same. But did you ever see? Because uh, they actually did in the 2000s. Um, they did a movie with Kevin Bacon, uh, confusingly named Death Sentence. But they did one. They did a movie that was like a more faithful adaptation of the novel. Did you ever see that? I did not see that one. No. Uh, it's it's good. Uh, mm. Not. Not as fun as the Death Wish movies, obviously, yeah. but um, but you can you can really see why why Garfield felt that it was a betrayal of his vision. Um, but yeah, uh, I mean, you talked about your theory. Why don't you um, uh, go into the? Um, oh wait, let me drop one more bit of trivia real quick. The script to Death Wish Three was written by Dan- Don Jacoby, uh, who wrote or co-wrote some of my favorite movies, uh, including Arachnophobia, which I loved growing up and which I still enjoy today. Uh, Life Force, a.k.a. the Naked Vampire in London movie uh, by Toby Hooper. And he also did another Toby Hooper Hooper movie, uh, Invaders from Mars, which I think is underrated. It's not one of Toby Hooper's best, I admit, but it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. He like Brian Garfield was dissatisfied by the final product. His original script apparently got butchered and severely rewritten, I think by Michael Winner, the British Tory director of the movie. Um, So I actually have a theory of my own 
about what Don Jacoby's original script looked like. Uh, I'll get into that later, but I think you can still see traces of it in the movie. But um, yeah, you you, uh, talk about the um, the theory that you have and 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 as a historian, what you make of of the politics of these movies. I will. Maybe we should do a quick rundown of the plot before we get started. Too much. Um, oh sure, yeah, we can. Um, or not, talk. just as we go along, just talk about it too. Uh, so, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, just just for the sake of of listeners, uh, yeah, the movie and then God knows if there isn't much plot. It's uh, so it doesn't go- open with a uh, uh, Charlie, right? Charlie Charles Bronson's friend getting killed by this gang. Yeah, yeah. Who? I mean, there's like an entire apartment block that get that's been consistently terrorized by a gang and they assassinate Charlie because he's like the only person who who stood up to them. Yeah. And he's a and of course he's a he's like a Vietnam vet or World War II Korean vet. War. Korean, Korean War, okay. Yeah. That's where he met uh Kersey in the Korean War. Oh that's right. Uh all the wars are just <laughs> merging in my head. Yeah. Kersey was a conscientious objector during the war. But he served as a, so he served as a combat man. Oh, that's right. That's how he met Charlie. Yeah, so Charlie was killed. And so anyway, he... But Charles Bronson somehow has some kind of weird sixth sense that something is wrong with his friend. He's on the <laughs> bus at the beginning. And he calls his friend, and the phone goes dead. And she's like, oh, bro, something's wrong. Oh, and the gang features Alex Winter of uh, Ted, right? Bill and Ted, yeah. Uh, and so he shows up. Charlie's dying. Charlie says, hey, take care of my stuff. And Charles Bronson's like, right, cool, man. I'll take care of your stuff. The cops walk in. Charles Bronson has a gun out. They arrest Charles Bronson. Yeah, and right? he's taken before the police chief who... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I could... Maybe I should have you killed. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Another great crazy. line. I get to violate your constitutional rights. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. And then, yeah, so he... Well, then, so Charles Bronson is getting kind of roughed up by some other cops. And the chief walks in. Ed Lauter, Lauter as the actor, wrote his Wikipedia page. And one of the descriptions <laughs> is, of him is, uh, he's always known for his male pattern baldness. <laughs> That's not... That's not a character trait or anything about the guy. And as a balding man, that's offensive. Uh, me and Larry David are gonna like that uh, spurge disparagement of the bald community. <laughs> so Ed Lauther and Charles Bronson kicks him in the dick, right? Uh, then he kicks him in the him dick and gets tossed into the holding cell. Yeah. Yeah, and he's tossed in the holding cell. Where he puts a fat guy's head through the bars, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and the gang leader just happens to be there, who, whose name I can't remember. I I, can't, I don't even know if they give it's, it in the movie. It's Manny something. Yeah, his character is Manny something. He was the villain in Willow. That's right. <laughs> He's also in Superman three. Is he? Yeah, he is <laughs> the drunk guy. I think who hits on Lana Lang. And oh yeah! Turn the key at the same time or something or other. It's been a long time since I've seen Superman three. Uh, but yeah, he's he's in he's the bad guy in Willow. He's in Superman three. He is a reverse Mohawk. 
where his head, his head is shaved down the middle. He has hair on the <laughs> sides. And so what happens from there, some, somehow Lauter, or this police chief, of course, recognized Kersey. And at one point says, hey, I'll let you out if you help me take care of this riffraff. Yeah. And Kersey is like, nah, I'm not going to do that for you. But he lets him go anyway. And then the chief lets the gang leader go, right? He he doesn't explicitly step in to let the gang leader go. I think the gang leader just just um, is is released. And then yeah. you have the public defender, Catherine. Yeah. Right, so the gang leader gets out and Kersey goes to Charles Bronson goes to this uh, some sort of projects some kind of bad neighborhood in some part of New York. Is it supposed to be Brooklyn or is it supposed to be Queens? Maybe I don't, I don't know. I don't think they ever clarify. Yeah. So and here's the spot where we can stop and talk for a little bit, but the, the makeup of this neighborhood is uh, wild because it opens, I think so before well, while, while Charlie's being killed, the camera goes to different apartments. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a Jewish couple yeah. with a menorah in the foreground. And eventually when they do a close-up of the Jewish guy, you see his yarmulke. So he has pictures of rabbis on his wall. Uh, so then you know he's Jewish. Uh, yes. And later on, making stuffed cabbage, which Charles Bronson was the smell of stuffed cabbage. Plenty of stuffed cabbage and touristly smells bad. Uh, so you have a Jewish couple, you have the Latino couple with uh, images of Jesus and Mary everywhere. <laughs> and uh, and um, the wife, Maria, I think. Maria, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Who went on it, to be in Star Trek, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's um, Maria, Marina Sirtis. And, and of course, she's Greek, but, you know, they pass her off as Hispanic anyway. Yeah, Which, she's olive skin, so close enough. Yeah, which is which is probably why she only gets two um, two lines in the entire movie, so she doesn't give away her accent or, or right. lack thereof. And her husband is Rodriguez, who becomes friends with Charles Bronson eventually, and participates in the killing of massive amounts <laughs> of teenagers. Uh, and and, and uh, Maria also becomes the subject of the movie's one. Uh, oh. One rape scene. Yeah, and it's horrifying. It's so graphic. Yeah. And graphic in a way that Michael Winner was probably enjoying filming it, right? That well, kind of yeah. leery grossness of it. And, and we talked about it before I started recording, so so I should probably work, it's, it's worth repeating that um, if you go to... Because I think they talk about it in the uh, Electric Boogaloo uh, documentary, Marina Sirtes. Because they interview her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and she... I think, right? Huh? Were they dating at the time? Was she dating Michael Winner? I don't... I don't remember. Um, Who's a known creep? Okay, I I was just going to say, yeah, because I think she talks about, like, how she wasn't... She was topless during the rape scene. And, like, they were... They were filming it outdoors, I think... Mm-hmm. Um, or in the drafty building, I can't remember which. And she was cold, and she said, "You know, could I get? You know, can I like at least put a blanket or something over, over me?" 
And and Michael Winter's like, no, that would ruin the lighting or, or something like that. It's just really creepy. Yeah. He's awful. Uh, well, he's dead, right? <laughs> well, did I, did I ever tell you the story of um, from uh, Red Letter Media when they talked about this movie? No, no. Um, and it's like a story. It, well, um, Mike, the the head Red, Red Letter Media guy, is a huge uh, Star Trek fan, and he was talking about how he was at a Star Trek convention, and Marina Sirtis was talking about like um, she she got up to speak, and she actually got emotional and started talking and started talking about how grateful she was for Star Trek because it saved her from having to do all these dirty, dirty movies, and like she was getting angry as she talked, and like when you watch this, you realize that oh my god, this is exactly what she was talking about. <laughs> yeah, God, dude, it's awful. Um. I should be laughing when I say that, but I mean, it, it kind of is when you, you know, you think about like the, what she must have gone through and just like how, how absurd, you know, that kind of thing is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's disgusting. Uh, but she did, she did pretty, she did well for herself. So she's on Star Trek yeah. time, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sadly she ended up getting telepathically raped in Star Trek Nemesis the movie, but <laughs> overall it was, it, it was an improvement to, yes. to what she had been doing. So, so anyway, you got this neighborhood, you got a Jewish couple who become, and they all love it when he kills again, kills these teenagers in the neighborhood. <laughs> And he massacres them. Yeah, it's, it's, it's insane because eventually they help massacre the, te- the teenagers. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's just bonkers. It's just, it's insane. The the yeah, to put this down on paper and like yeah, this is a good idea for a movie. This is gonna sell. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, because there's that one scene he shoots. He he shoots the giggler. Yeah, one the, of the, the leading back. gang members in the back. Um, and I mean, the movie, I guess, <laughs> I guess in its defense, it tries to, cause it, it, it has like a comment about how he like raped and murdered a woman earlier or something, but you know, we don't see him doing anything all that bad, except I think like harassing some people and stealing a purse or something. Purse snatching. Yeah. 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 Purse snatching. And, and you know, Bronson just like shoots them and like the whole, the entire freaking neighborhood like comes out and they're like, yeah, he shot the creep. And everybody yeah, calls the gang members creep. Murder. <laughs> yeah. I shot murder that kid. There's no way around it. Murder. And even then, um, I mean, I mean, we got to talk about it later, but like during the huge climax, the scene where like the this like old timey middle aged biker gang um, is uh, gets murdered by a bunch of by by some people in the neighborhood. Like yeah. they 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 put out like wire on the street and it knocks over the the bicyclists and then they like. I can't remember if they shoot him or beat them to death. They, they do something. Them, they beat them to death. Yeah. Yeah, and then like children, like at, at most middle school age children, um, <laughs> possibly younger, like come out and they start dancing around the corpses. And it's yeah, just, dude, it's so. It's just and it's weird. It is. <laughs> yeah. So this neighborhood, anyway, they get to that point eventually. So you have. You know, elderly black woman who lives there. She's one of the people. Giggler 
steals her purse um, mm-hmm. at one point. And then you have the couple who owns a laundromat, I think, right? An old white couple. So basically, point is, it's a multi-ethnic neighborhood. They're all all these ethnicities live in this one apartment building. Uh, Jewish, black, Latino, or white. I would assume, I don't remember, but the laundromat couple may have been some kind of Eastern European, maybe. Uh, uh, I think so. Well, anyway, it is a, a melting pot, right? Kind of Ellis Island all in one grungy place. And so you had a cell block and Charles Bronson shows up. One of the first things he does is he gets a P.O. box. It becomes important later on because you can mail order rocket launchers. In <laughs> the 80s, apparently. Um, I don't I don't know if you. I don't know if you could ever do that, but it's it's pretty boss, right? He does, he does, he does it by phone. <laughs> so he orders. Then he gets a PO box. He buys a car with cash, and his he meets a, he meets an old man named Bennett, who's a World War II veteran. Yeah, and he was also one of Charlie's friends. And he and he also looks like a discount uh, Ernest Borgnine. He does he does yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Bruce and I, and I share a birthday, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. I was actually watching this. I was like, I was like, Ernest Borgnine, I need to watch Merlin's Shop of Mystical Wonder soon. Well, did you ever hear about the Fox News interview where or Ernest Borgnine, um, he was asked how, how he managed to stay alive so long? No. And he just flat out says masturbating. <laughs> awesome. Yes. I think Kurt Vonnegut has something similar. It was like cigarettes and uh, martinis or something. <clears throat> I mean, Kurt Vonnegut said he masturbated to stay alive. I'm sure he would have. Um, so masturbation's better for you. So. It is, yeah, yeah. One of the first, actually, one of the first memories I had of you was that we were at it was like our first week in Columbia, and you were yelling something about how you were an expert or could talk forever about Thomas Aquinas and masturbating. <laughs> Thomas Aquinas' opinions on it. And I'm like, who in the hell is this guy? Like, who is this person? <laughs> you were holding court over some people. And, and after that, looking back, I was like, oh, no. That, is, that sounds like something Chad would say at a party. <laughs> it's true, though. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, and so, anyway, he has this. And here's one of the, again, kind of the tone of the movie. So he sets his car up as bait. And the gang, so there's a gang that terrorizes this neighborhood. And what's interesting is that it's, again, this multi-ethnic gang. The leader's a white guy who I think he's actually Irish, but he's doing a really bad American accent in it. Mm. Uh, and you get, you have like Rastafarians in it. You notice that? You guys <laughs> with dreadlocks. You have Latinos in the gang. You have African-Americans. It's again, it's this multi all multi ethnic neighborhood and a multi ethnic gang. Yeah. And so he goes ahead, so all right, we'll kind of speed this up. So he eventually ends up eating dinner with this Jewish couple and he hears them breaking into his car, goes outside and shoots these kids. <laughs> and he comes in and everyone's like, Oh, well, that's what's going on. Ah, oh, it's taking care of taking care of my car. I was like, What? Your dinner guest stepped outside, murdered two people, and comes back in, right? It's just, right. and everybody's like, oh, yeah, just kind of casual with it. Um, so I think the movie, 
So here's why. So Chicago is multi-ethnic neighborhood. We're talking about this multi-ethnic gang. Here's why I think the movie is trying to do with race. Uh, no, I haven't seen Death Wish 2, which is mm. apparently interracial politics are horrifying. But in this one, the, and again, the third one still has horrifying racial politics. Right? It's still white reactionary. Uh, so at one point in the movie, Bennett, the old white guy, says, they call us old, but 20 years ago, we used to run the country. Oh, like that, yeah. That's just white, this white reactionary Donald Trump just getting a big rubbery one watching that. Mm. Uh, and so, anyway, so what I think the movie was trying to do was by having a multi-ethnic gang saying, hey, Charles Bronson doesn't just kill brown people. Yeah. Uh, it's not just killing people of color. He's killing white gang members too. So it's not racist. Right? This is not a racist franchise. It's not a racist movie because he is doing these things. But it seems at the end of the day, it's still the people of color getting the worst of it. Um, yeah, because I was also thinking, I, I, I kind of wonder, and I think the Electric Boogaloo documentary pointed out too, I kind of wonder if it was like um, uh, the the. Uh, Globus and uh, I'm blanking on the other Gollum. guy. Gollum, Gollum. Right? Yeah, Gollum and Globus. If, if that might have been their influence a little bit, maybe not so much with the gang, because I think you're right that it was like kind of an attempt at course correction after the criticisms yeah. of the first two movies. Yeah. Um, maybe like their influence came through in, you know, depicting America as like this happy melting pot, you know, it's just like different people can live inside the same building and, you know, build a community and stuff. Um, And like the more problematic stuff is coming from Michael Winter, uh, the, again, who, again, we have to emphasize was openly conservative. Um, Yeah. Yeah. uh, I I shouldn't say openly conservative. I should say openly reactionary. I I would get that far. Reactionary. Yeah. Yeah, and you see it in the it, yeah. When you brought this up, I I remember one scene that I actually kind of forgot, even though I just watched a movie this morning. Um, yeah, because you have that scene where like the police come by the apartment and they harass the old Jewish couple about a gun that the guy has, and the guy's forced to surrender it, or the cops will arrest him. And like the very next scene, their window gets broken in, and like this tall very fit very buff black guy climbs through the window and like terrorizes them and extorts them and and it just like it just goes i we could come anytime you we want and you know and it's like yeah i know it's, it's like an nra ad that's been it, put into the oh, yeah i did like the cops are gonna come steal your guns and what are you gonna have to protect yourself from these bands of roving people of color and it's the people of color who commit the most heinous violence in the movie too yeah yeah no well, it, so it's it's i think you're right i think that there was as much as canon could try to do a social commentary of some sort that was maybe an attempt to say hey look all these different people can live together but michael winner's reactionary politics is just too too much <laughs> That's why I think I think that it was an attempt at course correction and it doesn't work as course correction. But at least it's an attempt, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I don't I don't know what to make of this movie to be honest. <laughs> watching it, I guess I don't know. This doesn't make any I don't 
again, which gets to, you know, also the police. So I think that the cops, at least in the first one and others, are shown as ineffective. And in this one, you can't tell if they're corrupt or bumbling. Um, Because the, so you would think when you watch the movie, when they go take the Jewish guy's gun, that they're doing it because they're corrupt. Yeah. That they're doing it because they're working at the gang. But that never, that never plays itself out. I mean, nothing comes from that. So I don't know if that just was up on the editing room floor or it was just bad storytelling. Well, that that fits into my theory about the the scripts, um, which oh yeah, I want to hear this, I want to hear this now. Yeah, three of the scripts. Oh well, we should probably uh, just wrap up by saying that, like, um, by talking about how the movie ends for for those of <laughs> for those, for everyone who hasn't watched it, but like the whole, um, yeah, just uh, well, uh, we we forgot about Catherine, the uh, public defender. Oh yes, right, yeah. Yeah, which is easy to do because she only has, like, four scenes in the whole movie. Yeah, right. And so there's a love interest in the movie. And <laughs> Catherine, public defender, sees Charles Bronson in the holding cell. And then she asks the chief about him. Yeah. Say, hey, you know, who's that stud, basically? <laughs> and she goes to the projects to see him and says, hey, you know, what's up? <laughs> I don't lose very often, but she go out. <laughs> And I said, you know why you don't do it? Because it's unethical. Because you're a public defender and you can move <laughs> your clients. That's why you don't do it. Because it is, you can very probably be disbarred for doing that, ladies. That's why you don't do it. Yeah, we should probably clarify that the actress playing Catherine is old enough to be Charles's uh, daughter or she's maybe she's even granddaughter. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he's at least twice her age. Yeah. And. Yeah, so she wants to, you know, she's raring to go, basically. Uh, and yeah, she seeks Charles him Bronson, out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they, he goes to her house for dinner one night, and she's basically more or less giving him bedroom eyes. Mm-hmm. The first date, when he goes home, because he needs to go kill people. Is it after the first date when he shoots down Giggler? Uh, I think so, yeah. Uh, and she's getting killed by the by the gang. Yeah, they don't rape her, uh, which which is like the most restraint this movie shows. Yeah, um, but it does lead to like my second favorite scene, which is uh, they so they knock her out um, and they um, they uh, release her car's parking brake and send it down the street while um, Charles Bronson is is uh, getting ice cream or something. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and her car crashes into another car, slices through the other car like a knife through butter, and then the other car explodes, and then her car explodes too. And it's just so funny. yeah, it doesn't make any sense. It's stupid. Well, it's like it, it just makes me think. I, I mean, one of the reasons I love because I grew up with The Simpsons before I was exposed oh, yeah. to movies like this, so that yeah. kind of makes it funnier. Yeah, because I keep thinking of like the stuff that Simpsons makes fun of comes right. from movies like this. Just things, blow, just things blowing up in the slightest slightest touch. <laughs> yeah, so you have that the public defender who yeah is all hot for the sixty four whatever sixty five year old man. 
And she doesn't really affect the plot at all because you'd think that this would be like, well, I mean, Charles Bronson is already killing people. He doesn't need he doesn't need the added motivation. Um, no, I said that he had and he has no motivation in this movie, really. Yeah, I mean, his friend I, I, is killed, but yeah, his friend is killed, but yeah, but other than that, it's 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 just he just violent because he's, he's a psychopath. Yeah. I think I don't know if they intended to make him a psychopath, but it it works. But again, that I keep imagining that scene with the Jewish family, like the Jewish couple. He shoots two kids mm-hmm. and goes inside and just continues to eat as if nothing happened. Um, it's it's just it's insane, and he takes he takes glee in killing people. But, yeah, but then, when his uh, when uh, Catherine dies, his reaction is like. Uh, uh, best described as mild annoyance because <laughs> yeah. it's like a close up uh, of his face and it's like uh, <laughs> what are the odds he dies after they have sex of course um, right I think the very night I think I think they had they, sex yeah. and then they, they had sex and they go get ice cream oh. <laughs> <laughs> which is so uh, I mean <clears throat> that is what I like about this movie is that it really if it had been written as a parody of '80s action movies, um, I don't think I don't think you could have done a better, much better job. I mean, the only thing missing is is the uh, is is the cheesy one liners and you know yeah. Charles Bronson is above that kind of thing. Um, no, but, you're right. I had that same thought in the, in the final battle that this yeah. was a parody more than anything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, God, we got to talk about the, yeah how the final battle starts because basically the gang leader he, with one phone call yeah, he yeah. causes like all the gangs in New York City to descend upon this neighborhood, <laughs> and a total fucking war breaks out. I don't know where you get this biker gang from. Yeah, and he calls on the phone. And it's so funny because he's in the movie he's this malicious, you know, psychopath. On the phone, he's so polite. <laughs> hey, uh, hey! Can you send whatever you got, please? <laughs> what? What? Who is this guy? <laughs> it's a simple phone call. He gets this these gangs to come, and Charles Bronson has a, like this thirty caliber machine gun, <laughs> just mowing people down. And yeah, World War Two era machine gun that he gets from uh, not Ernest Borgnine. <laughs> yeah, Bennett. Bennett. Yeah. Bennett. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah, well, it was Charlie's gun, wasn't it? I think it was Charlie's. I think so. Oh, it was. <laughs> well, Charlie has all these military guns. Like, Charlie, you're a thief. You're stealing from the American government. Right? You stole these guns from the U.S. Army. So, yeah, he's mowing down all these people. And it is, it's a, so it's, a, it's like a combination of those old, like, 50s and 60s World War II movies. I mean, it's massive melee and, or battle. And then mixing it for Western. Right, yeah. just this shootout at the end, and it's just thousands of bullets, people on fire, cars on blowing fire. up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The neighborhood participating eventually. So as soon as the battle starts, everyone in the neighborhood right, goes into their underwear drawer and takes out guns. Yeah. And, they start and, they and Rodriguez has, has his little zip gun. <laughs> All I got is a zip gun. It's like, oh well, it's not gonna be much use. Yeah, what got me was the other problem, and you mentioned this earlier, they use a chain to knock these guys off their motorcycles, mm-hmm. and these people come out of the woodwork and just start beating the people to death. 
Uh, and then it ends with Charles Bronson shooting a rocket launcher at the, at the main bad guy and blowing up half the apartment and everyone cheers. <laughs> like you just saw a guy get exploded. All right. It's, it's going to be a horrifying thing to see. And yeah. everyone is just like, well, all right, cool. And the gang just walks away. <laughs> yeah. Cause, cause like, and that's like the only moment of humanization yeah. that the gang gets is um, the, uh, the gang leader's girlfriend screams with genuine grief when she sees it. And she apparently becomes the leader now, now that he's dead. And she just like holds up her hand and they all leave and go back to wherever. Because it's never made clear, like, if they're actually a part of the neighborhood, too, or... Yeah, no, which know, is... Yeah, somewhere. so weird, yeah. So one thing that... I want to add this always struck me about these kinds of action movies is particularly, of course, the neighborhood participating is, is disturbing, but how casual the main characters are about killing people. Yeah. They go on, they just act as if it's something that you just do uh, and not this very traumatic experience of blowing up another human launcher. They crack jokes. Yeah, and that's something that the first Death Wish actually did well, um, at least at the beginning. It's like the first time Charles Bronson kills somebody, he throws up. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah, yeah. And that's the same from the novel, I think. But this but, time, he's basically a paid vigilante. He's basically a paid vigilante. Yeah. And, and I mean, yeah, that's what kind of makes this movie like either you'll either find it disturbing or so over the top you'll find it hilarious yeah. is the fact that you get average everyday people celebrating just these horrible massacres and i, I mean they they portray the gang members in as bad a light as possible like i said there's only one humanizing moment out of the entire movie um but it doesn't really detract from just how dark it is, to be honest. But, which, which, I mean, I want to bring up the gang really quick. I mean, they rape Maria. But other than that, how awful were they? At least from what we see. I mean, they steal some TVs. They steal a car stereo. Yeah, they, they extort money. Yeah, uh, so they're not, I don't know, like a bunch of teenagers, you know, just... I mean, they're bad, of course, but they're not. Besides the rape, they're not this over the top. I don't know. It was. It's. It's weird. Uh, yeah, there's like one. Yeah, I mean, there. There's like a a throwaway reference to the giggler raping that's a true. woman. Yeah, yeah. But but again, I mean, we don't actually see it, and, and other than that, he's actually one of the. From what we see, he's one of the more harmless gang members. Yeah, he's first. He steals a person. He steals the. The camera from Charles Bronson. Charles Bronson yeah. his bait. <laughs> and, like shakes his ass and walks with this camera slung on his shoulder. And then yeah. yes, I mean, that shoots him in the back. So one thing that one other thing that struck me, so this movie is you know, it comes out in what, eighty five, I think? Yeah. yeah. Five. So one thing that I was surprised was not in the movie was crack. Yeah. The gang members use cocaine. Some of them do anyway, but it's not something they're all doing. Uh, but so, yeah, it's a 1980s movie 
about gang violence in the inner city in New York and there's no crack. So that to me that was surprising that they didn't include that in it. Because yeah. if anything you think the white people seeing this movie are gonna see you think included crack in it. But that's not that's not in it at all. Um, so maybe that fits in though into your different script theory. Maybe I don't I don't know. You still haven't explained it to me, Chad. Oh, yeah, a little bit. I'll get I'll get there. Cause yeah. I because I think because there's also like lingering shots of like um long abandoned office buildings mm. um that you get. So it's kind of like there's sort of a gesture toward there being uh, systemic issues that are probably leading to to all this crime. Right. Um but but I think that the I, I honestly and and I swear I I did more research than I normally did because I was so desperate to find out more about what this original script was like. But I really couldn't find anything except you know them point, pointing out that the screenwriter pulled a Alan Smithy. That's not the name he went with, but it was a name like that. Right. Um, so so he had to have been really disgruntled with what uh, they did with his script. But yeah, my theory is that honestly, I think that the original script was probably more complex than just, you know, terrorizing than um, Charles Bronson going after gang members. Because I think I think in the original version of the script, like the police chief was an antagonist. Oh, OK. I, I mean, obviously, I, I, I don't know what what the plan would have been, but. I think that he was he it would have turned out that he was working with the gang in some way, right. either as part of like a penguin and Batman returns esque plot to to make himself look good and and you know try to become mayor or something like that, or as part of like some kind of drug plot right. um, <clears throat> but but like the implication would have been you know well, not the implication but the uh sequel escalation would have been what if Charles Bronson is put in a situation where it's not just criminals he has to fight. It's like a, a corrupt system. Oh, gotcha. Um, and probably would have explored like the implications of that and, you know, some other stuff. And maybe, maybe it would have turned out that Charlie was targeted by the gang, not because he was like the only one to stand up to them, but because he knew something. Right. And that it was actually the police chief who ordered his assassination. So that would have been a true that would have been a twist. And like maybe originally Catherine had a bigger role where she um, was investigating. She was doing research for a case or something. And mm. so she also found evidence. So she would have either been Charles Bronson's ally or she would have been killed yeah. um, because of what she knew. And that would have led Charles Bronson to uncovering what was really going on. Um, and like the evidence I have for this, admittedly it's not much, but it's like the police chief's character doesn't really make sense unless he was meant to be a villain because of the way he abuses Charles Bronson at the very beginning, he threatens to kill him. And then all of a sudden his behavior shifts on a dime as if, you know, Oh wait, I can use him in some way. Yeah. 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 Well, at the end, the police chief is killing people with Charles Bronson. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's certainly, you know, he's trying to keep his hand, at the very least, he's trying to keep his hands clean. And also, like, in the mid-scenes where the police chief shows up 
to try to get information on the gang from Charles Bronson. Charles Bronson acts suspicious of him. Right. He doesn't. He doesn't trust him. They're, they're definitely not buddy buddies like they are by the end of the movie. So I think that like the script was so clumsily butchered that there were still these scenes right. and lines that were supposed to build up to a twist where. It turns out that the police chief is is in cahoots with the gang, but you know they changed it so that the police chief instead is Charles Bronson's ally completely. But I mean, as it is, like the police chief's nothing about the police chief entire. I, I mean, I hate to even use the word character arc because that really is one. Mm-hmm. He, in the movie, as it is, he's basically just a plot device, you know. Yeah, I mean, you have that whole scene where he and Charles Bronson are talking, and and Charles goes, "You're turning me loose. I'm turning you loose." And and like, but yeah. he didn't need to do that. There, there's like no reason because I mean, Charles Bronson was going to do all this anyway. It's not like you know he's worried that the police chief will have him arrested like he threatens to do. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think you're right, and that would explain the the two. Um, the two patrolmen going over to the Jewish couple's house and taking their gun. Yeah. It's somehow involved in that the police chief has his, the people he knows he can trust under him to carry out the, his, his plan with the gang and controlling the neighborhood. But there doesn't yeah, seem it, to be, but this neighborhood <laughs> doesn't seem to have anything going for it that you would want to control. I mean, they don't show the gang selling drugs at all. The gang is using the drugs there's like no no one seems to work except for the people who own the laundromat so i don't know what about this particular neighborhood uh people would want to control other than just a bunch of shithead kids who are terrorizing these innocent multi this multi-ethnic neighborhood i don't i don't get it but the movie's interesting and again this is this is common in these 80s action movies that they least take place in the U.S. is this urban kind of decay. So, you yeah. know, what is it, the broken windows theory, I think it is? Mm-hmm. Right, that if a neighborhood has broken windows, don't fix it, because it's going to be broken again next week. Yeah. So, you know, kind of abandoned these places. And so it seems to me that this movie is appealing to, I guess, I don't know what audience this is trying to appeal to, but this kind of this is what urban this is what the urban life is like, you know. Uh, you got these kids, which eighties New York apparently was that way. It was apparently it was awful. Uh, so you have this this sense of what's why movie is so interesting is you have well we need Charles Bronson to come in and we need the neighborhood to take matters with their own hands. But at the end, the police are involved. So the police, the police participate in the shootout. The police chief, but also you have people, cops showing up in their patrol cars in the shootout. And yeah. so it's, so it seems to be the movie is saying, yeah, you need vigilantes, but the police will help or can help. Although well, not very effective, but still, the, the police are still on the vigilantes side at the end of the day. So it's a weird mixed messages, I think, because, yeah, unless unless the theory is similar to Dirty Harry, that you got to have the only good cops are anti-establishment cops. 
which must be what this movie is probably going for is that the chief is effective because he's good because he recognizes why we need someone like Charles Bronson, someone who can mm-hmm. operate outside of the law, someone who's doesn't have to f- follow code <clears throat> conduct or proper ethics, but can just shoot kids in the back for stealing the camera. <laughs> right. And, but but I mean I think it I think it kind of does support my theory that there was like because like it's inconsistent how much the chief and the police care about the rules like like you know one minute they're you know turning their backs on Charles Bronson doing whatever he wants and the next they're you know confiscating a gun from the from the Jewish couple right it's it's, it's I don't I'm trying to. I cannot suss out the politics. It's just because they're it's just so. I mean, really, it's kind of an amoral movie. Yeah, <laughs> it really is, and, and, and I, I, I think like the first two Death Wish movies are extremely political because they they flat out have Cursey. The first one, Cursey identifies as a bleeding heart liberal, and yeah, he he changes, and in the second movie. Um, I, I still remember the scene. It's like one of the more famous scenes. Like he's he's actually listening to, um, uh, I guess Rush Limbaugh before Rush Limbaugh exist, existed, okay. um, and like the housemaid complains about it and and shoots her. No, he doesn't shoot her, but he um, yeah, but yeah, yeah. It's like the implication is that you know that that Kersey is has joined the right wing. Um, and, and, and definitely three is weird because it does. Yeah. Like you said, it has mixed messages. It's, it's pro, you know, uh, pro diversity in this really weird way. Like, you know, it's awesome when black people and Jewish people and, and, um, Hispanics can live together. But at the same time, you know, there's like the whole thing with the, uh, with, with gun control, like New York's gun control laws are bad, and we need to um, have more people uh, fight. Because they even have Catherine, the public defender, go, "People need to fight back." And, yeah, know, right. Yeah, yeah. You know. it, 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 she's sick of the system and everything. But um, so, so I don't know. It, it, it's kind of interesting because you know it. it it kind of defies the right-left dichotomy, but at the same time, it you know, it's it's definitely a reactionary. Oh movie. yeah, for sure, it's definitely still reactionary. Yeah, and well, what? Yeah, and so it seems to me that I mean, there's, there's of course, I mean, room for police officers, but the only, again, the only cops are effective. These ones in leadership are the ones who are willing to turn a blind eye toward actions of people like. Charles Bronson. It's kind of like Commissioner Gordon and Batman, right? <laughs> that, you know, hey, you know, don't really prove of all this, but you're making our job easier. Yeah. And you're doing things that we can't do. And so I think that's, I guess that's the messaging of the day is we need to have vigilantes, but also take restrictions off of police officers to yeah. allow them to be more effective. Because at one point, Police officer talks about, I think because they say there's a meeting with the police chief and the captain says, hey, we have increased our patrols, but increased patrols are still more crime. It doesn't cut back on crime. But once you get Charles Bronson involved killing people, 
and then you get the police killing people, then crime goes down. So it's basically saying, listen, you can put all the cops in the street you want, until you allow them to do what needs to be done, nothing's going to change. I'm not going to see any only addiction violence going to happen with taking limitations off of police officers. I mean, we see that. I mean, that's the same right wing uh, kind of right wing reactionary argument today, right? That there's too many rules put on cops. And that's why their job is so hard because they deal with these things, but they need to be allowed to take the gloves off every now and then, so to speak, in order to be effective. You know, it's like Donald Trump pardoning all these war criminals. Yeah. Hey, yeah. you know, sometimes these things have to happen. Because the gang members don't have families. They don't have you know, their own community outside of their bubble, you know. Right. They're, they're completely outside society. Right. Right. I mean, a lot of them are just like teenagers, right? So they're just probably poor homeless kids who are stealing to make money. They're drug addicts. And right? so some, again, they... Yeah, I mean, they're teenagers usually. Uh, it's not to excuse their violence or whatever, the behavior, but still, like, the movie fails. And I think you're right. There may have been somewhere in this movie an attempt to address some of those systemic issues in the urban area, in urban urban life in the 80s. But this movie doesn't want to deal with it. Yeah, it was like that any part of the movie that dealt with that was, like, strongly surgically removed. and, yeah. and which, is, which is really a shame because I think you could have still had a pretty – a movie with a fairly conservative message that would have been consistent with the first two movies, but also have like a more sophisticated plot. I mean, because it really would have been interesting seeing uh, Charles Bronson go up against a corrupt police chief. Uh, right. at the, I mean, it, it would have definitely had more twists and more uh, or unpredictability than, you know, what we got where um i mean the movie i mean to the movie's credit it's not so bad that there, there are like a couple of tense scenes where charles bronson is shown to be human like the scene where the gang almost traps him and he has to flee up the um or rather his stunt double has to flee up like different fire escapes and like right. run through somebody's apartment so yeah, so yeah. the movie doesn't fall into the trap of making him invincible but you know, it's it's just him against like these cartoonishly evil people. Yeah, yeah. Which is really sad because like the first scene where the police chief is just like attacking him and gloating about being able to take away his rights. I mean, and that sets him up as a more compelling antagonist than the gang than the gang leader ever is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the gang leader is. Yeah, he's not. He's not an entity really. He's just this goofy guy off a reverse mohawk. Yeah, you're right. No, because I think yeah. So it, it could have raised interesting questions about the police chief's tactics, but then maybe would have led to some kind of self reflection on Charles Bronson's part. Like, hey, wait a minute, what am I doing? Right? Yeah, I am shooting this again. Back to the giggler, just shoots a kid in the back for stealing a camera. Right? It's just, I said, what gives you the right, Charles Bronson, to do this? But uh -huh. no, he doesn't want to go there, and it's. I don't, I mean, it maybe could have been a better movie, but it's still, I wouldn't expect a whole lot more from Canon either, to be honest. Uh, but, but I have to admit though, as, as, as much as like 
because yeah, when you when you watch, and I think that is a problem with American politics, and not just the right wing, but you also see a lot from uh, from people who describe themselves as liberals, like the idea that the idea that it's not the system; it's always individual choices, and that's kind of right. what you see with the gang members. And I think probably not showing them addicted to drugs, even though there is like a little bit about. A little bit of it, yeah, yeah. Well, and that the drug that the leader gives them drugs before they go kill people, right? It's almost like the way the way child soldiers are given drugs in Africa, yeah. The world, right? That you have these war leaders giving people drugs in order to get them to kill, and that's not addressed in the movie. Whereas yeah. it's clear before when the first time they really go out and kill, the gang leader is giving his gang drugs saying, hey, take these drugs and go out and do what you got to do. So it missed opportunity, but it was still, I mean, I, I don't know. I enjoyed watching it. It's kind of dumb fun in a sick, twisted kind of way, I guess. Well, especially the last 30 minutes. I mean, if, if you can just um, if you can just turn your brain off, which you know Charles Bronson turned his brain off when he did this movie because he yeah. just – like he doesn't do a bad job in it. I, I no, don't want to get that impression. He's a fine actor, yeah. But he he just does not give a shit, and it's kind of glorious. Yeah, he got paid like a million dollars to do something like that. So yeah, because he didn't want to originally, if I remember correctly. He didn't. Yeah. So they offered it to Chuck Norris. Oh God! No, Chuck that would have been The violence, the violence was too negative, or something. Really? For yeah. Chuck Norris? <laughs> yeah. That I think your legend says there's no point to this violence. So why 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 would I do this? Charles Bronson. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, for a million bucks, I would I would be I would start on a lot worse movies. So <laughs> a lot cheaper than Charles Bronson. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I but but I I do love the last thirty minutes of this movie. I mean, it's it's uncomfortable because there's like yet another scene where a woman is uh, is 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 about to be raped charles bronson saves her but you know it's it's an excuse for the camera to focus on her breast for like five minutes yeah and, um, yeah but just just like just like seeing the movie literally go insane and just have like <laughs> <laughs> this orgy of non-stop horrific violence is yeah. kind of kind of awesome um Here's i have to say Mike Warner just let his id take over, right? Yeah. Like pure, movie's pure id by the end. <laughs> it really is. In a way that that you couldn't um you couldn't you couldn't plan for, honestly. Uh, no, I don't, I don't think they did have any idea what they were doing. I don't think so either. But um but but do you so so you would say that the movie or at least or at least the last thirty minutes of it is a is a worthy addition to the trash canon? Totally, yeah, no, all, yeah, yeah. Especially the, the, yeah, the gangs show up and get biker gangs and everyone cheering when people are killed. And it's Charles Bronson <laughs> holding the barrel of a machine gun. And the machine gun barrels don't get hot, which I mean, I would assume yeah. it gets hot. I don't think about guns. Yeah, no, it definitely does deserve, the whole movie deserves being the trash cannon because it's, I think it's trying to do something, but it fails on about, every single level and it's just this pure unadulterated earnest trash really i think yeah. i think michael was trying to say something with this movie 
and the earnestness of it is horrifying that <laughs> we are seeing one man's view of the world. You think, oh my God, people like this exist, and they have a lot of money and power. Uh, we have people like that, our president now. Yeah. And it's so it's, it's horrifying. So the earnestness of it is what is kind of makes it usually part of trash cam. The earnestness of it, especially looking at our politics today and who our president is and how he uses the same sort of dog whistle politics to fire people up. I bet you Donald Trump loves this movie if you saw it. Maybe he would love it. If he could, if, if he could pay attention long enough. God, I can't, I can't even imagine him needing to fast forward three parts of Death Wish. Oh, yeah. No, Bloodsport. Bloodsport. Bloodsport well, yeah. I mean, this movie, yeah. too. If he, if In this he movie, too. It. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> God, yeah. Don, I think it was Don Jr. or Eric Arnold. Yeah, fast forwarding through Bloodsport <laughs> with, the, with the journalists there with them. Um, but yeah, yeah. What? Please watch Death Wish Three unless yeah. unless you think you would find the politics horrifying too horrifying. Yes, but, they are horrifying. Um, mm-hmm. At one point, I would have. So I'm glad I watched it, and I, I think it's horrifying, but it's also still still hitting a little too close to home. Now, it's a little too seems feels a little too real. And it's, I think maybe it was in the eighties when you had Reagan who did the same thing, but I don't know. I think Reagan, I don't, I don't know. He was a lot more harmless than, which is crazy to say that Reagan was more harmless than somebody, but he's probably more harmless than Donald. And the difference is Donald explicitly supports this kind of thing. Yeah. Whereas Ronald Reagan would say stuff that would align up this movie, but not be so just upfront about it. And so blatantly racist and awful and a lunatic. <laughs> I'm not sure you wanted this to turn into an anti-Trump thing, but it is now. Well, no, I mean, you, like I said, I mean, you can't, you can't not talk about politics and, and death wish at the same time. Yeah. I have not seen the Bruce Willis one, although I'm sure that is by directed by Eli Roth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, for, I, I I forgot about that one. I I actually enjoyed the Green Inferno, um, even though even though like all of Eli Roth's other movies, I I tend to I don't hate them, but I I just don't like them. There's just something about like Rob Zombie and Eli Roth trying to recreate the magic of. 70s exploitation that just seems to yeah, fall flat. It doesn't it doesn't work because yeah, no, that, that is interesting because whereas Tarantino can do it masterfully, I think Eli Roth and Rob Zombie, maybe it's because they don't get it in the same way that Tarantino does. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I guess we should wrap it up at this point because okay. I think I'm, well thanks for doing this, yeah, yeah. Um, let me let me give my usual closing spiel. Uh, thank you for for listening, and uh, you can find me at um, Chad Denton on YouTube and my show Hollywood Hates History, and also check out my ongoing 
Web Pro Series, John and Amar, which is still going on, even though I haven't uh, updated it in a while. But um, I will change that, hopefully, by the time this drops. Um, Jonathan, I know you're not working on any on any like YouTube or or uh, podcast right now, but um, but yeah, feel free to to promote yourself or anything you worked on right now. Uh, I mean, I'm on Twitter. I think my handle is at root JB. Uh, I think that's what it is at root JB, Jonathan root coming on Twitter. I'm on Instagram under, I think the root 1984. I should remember these things. <laughs> I can be found on social media and yeah, like, I'm not doing any web series or anything. So I have nothing like that to, to promote. Uh, don't forget to promote your podcast before Stonewall, Chad. That's good too, actually. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah! Check listen- out before Stonewall. Thank you, Jonathan, for reminding me. I've been listening me. to that one too. So awesome! Yeah, I'm going to try to have all the old episodes uh, up by next week, and then I will uh, hopefully get a new one done by before too long. All right. All right. Well, thank you. Huh? You're a busy man. I know. I don't. I don't know how I. Well, no. I know how I do it. I have no social life. That that helps tremendously. 